1: Thank you all for being with us for another edition of Political Rewind. It's International Women's Day, a day that goes all the way back to 1909 when it was first established in this country as National Women's Day. Uh, It's worth pointing out that even though there was a day established in 1909 uh, to mark the significance of women, uh, the fact of the matter was it was 11 years later before women even got the right to vote in the United States. But um, just to follow the track of International Women's Day a little bit, a year after it was established here, a number of European countries decided they too wanted to mark a day to honor women. So it became an international event. The United Nations has embraced it as a uh, major part of the themes that it undertakes every year. The campaign this year for International Women's Day is Embrace Equality. Um, And the people who are behind the uh, effort are urging people to challenge gender stereotypes, call out discrimination, draw attention to bias, and seek out inclusion. And here's just a quote from the um, Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. Gender equality is both a fundamental human right and a solution to some of our greatest global challenges, but half of humanity is held back by the most widespread human rights abuses of our time. And he, of course, is talking largely about uh, countries beyond uh, the United States, like Iran. Nevertheless, he also says gender equality is a question of power. The patriarchy, with millennia of power behind it, is reasserting itself. The United Nations is fighting back and standing up for the rights of women and girls everywhere. And that certainly applies to what we are seeing in the United States as well. One other quick note before I introduce the panel. Um, It was back in 2011 that um, President Obama uh, on this day called for a, a Women's History Month, which we're in right now. And at that time, President Obama said, history shows us that when women and girls have access to opportunity, societies are more just, economies are more likely to prosper, and governments are more likely to serve the needs of all their people. All right, all that said, let's get right to this terrific panel that we've put together uh, today. And and as you'll hear in a moment, I am literally the odd man out today because we have a wonderful panel of some of the uh, our favorite women who do this show with great regularity, starting with Margaret Coker. She's the uh, editor in chief of The Current, which is based out of Savannah, but which is a nonprofit news organization. You can read online at thecurrentga.org. Margaret, we're always glad to have you with us. Thanks for being here today.
2: Happy to be here. Happy Women's Day, everyone.
1: We're also joined today uh, by Audrey Haynes, professor of political science at the University of Georgia, who's right now told us before the show is enjoying her spring break. Thanks for uh, uh, being with us, despite the fact that you're off this week, Audrey.
0: Well, I never think of Political Rewind as work.
1: Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you for that. Tammy Greer is back with us as well. She's a professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University. Tammy, thank you for joining us today.
3: Thank you so much, Bill, for having me.
1: And we haven't seen enough of her lately because she's become such an important part of the University of West Georgia. But Karen Owen is with us, professor of political science, but now dean of University College and the Honors College at the University of West Georgia. Karen, thanks so much. It's great to have you back with us today.
4: I'm so glad to join you, especially on International Women's Day.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, let's get right to talking about it um, and, and some of the issues that we're dealing with as um, we honor, celebrate whatever words you want to use for this International Women's Day. Margaret, it, it strikes me that it's clear that the probably most significant difference between International Women's Day last March and this March is that since then, the United States Supreme Court has thrown out Roe v. Wade— And uh, we know now that as many as half the states in this country are moving toward either banning or severely restricting uh, women's rights to choose. And in just the last 24 hours or so, we've learned that the Florida legislature, with Ron DeSantis' backing, appears to be headed toward passing a bill much like Georgia's so-called heartbeat law, which would stop abortions after Uh, about six weeks of pregnancy. So do you think it's fair to say that when it comes to major issues, this is one of the most significant things that we can talk about to start the show?
2: It is definitely one of the most significant things to talk about um, on this show and, and more shows. And it's not so much rooted in the morality of abortion for lots of people in Georgia it's really about the access to healthcare it's the ac- the pathway to equality for women runs through our our economic rights and our economic opportunities and our reproductive organs sometimes get in the way of those economic opportunities and the the other thing i think to mention when we're talking about about healthcare access reproductive rights um, and women's rights particularly is the fact that that women in Georgia who want to be pregnant who want to have their babies also face enormous challenges. so while we're all trying to decide biologically when we want to have a family, if we want to have a family, we also have to think about where can I get health care you know there are these astounding statistics in the state of Georgia beyond access to abortion or how to control um how to control our biologies but In 63 Georgia counties, there are no pediatricians. In 78 of Georgia's 159 counties, there are no OBGYNs. So for my sisters and neighbors and cousins and colleagues who are pregnant and want to deliver safely, that poses steep challenges. Um, And when we get to the legislature, and of course we're in this amazingly, um, you know, uh, you know, f- um, fermented time where where we're discussing our policies, when we're talking about healthcare, when we're talking about safety, when we're talking about family values. Uh, I think we all need to talk about these things in a in a big bundle.
1: Um, I, I think imp- it's important to frame the right to choose as a larger issue, part of a larger issue of women's access to healthcare. Uh, Karen, at the same time. Uh, I, I really would love to talk a little bit about a story that uh, the AJC's uh, health reporter, Ariel Hart, uh, put up uh, late last week. Um, she she looked at a study done by the Journal of the American Medical Association, which uh, did a data search of Georgia abortions going back 11 years. And what they found in that stu- study is that only 9% of The pregnancies um, that occurred during that period of time, which is, um, uh, we'll get to the number in a minute, only 9% would have met the new six-week cutoff for an abortion, according to the study. And the findings also show a disproportionate number of teenagers and black patients are likely being affected. And it's not just a matter of looking at this historically. It gives us a sense of what this law is doing as we move forward
4: so it is fascinating what this story is uh, this uh, research is showing us right and i say fascinating the idea that when these laws were originally passed the heartbeat bill and other restrictive measures we didn't know exactly what the consequences could be we knew that there would be restrictions but we didn't actually have the real knowledge of the data behind it and now we know that there would be fewer people who could actually have the access to do this, have the choice and actually be able to take care of the health care that they need to, to provide whatever they need in their life to, to live well. Um, it is discouraging to hear the impact too. I mean, this is not progress progressing us in our state is actually really hindering many of our, As Margaret mentioned, our sisters, our aunts, our cousins, those around us that they can't have the ability, to make the choice or to to seek the dreams that they want. And so we now have the data from this report to kind of see the impact of the law. And I think if we know this, then it's incumbent upon our elected officials to see it, think about it and understand that laws have an impact too. And can you go back and revise or rethink things as we move forward? Cami, Yeah, Bill, so if I could, I'd like to take an economic
3: slant to this. so, to push back, uh, you know, that I, I think we did know what the impact of these laws were um, because there has been data out there, not only from a healthcare perspective, um, what Margaret said about um, the number of OBGYNs and pediatricians in the state, this is not new information. This is very old information. Um, this goes back to the Affordable Care Act when President Obama was in office and there was a push to extend health care. However, from an economic standpoint, what I would like to focus on is that, and this data that I'm citing is about three years old, so forgive me for this. However, 81% of custodial parents are mothers and 31% of those mothers are uh, live below the poverty line. Many of these mothers um, are 47% of the custodial mothers are full time and they work uh, year round. Um, many of them are on that same, that work year round are on public assistance. Um, and uh, many of them are not receiving child supports. Um, so when in, in Georgia, um, Georgia has $6 billion in child support arrears that are owed to custodial parents. So when we have these conversations, not only about the the healthcare, it also becomes a cycle of poverty for women. It becomes a cycle of poverty where we are, um, the custodial parents uh, of these children are working, they're not getting the support that is owed to them under state law and it keeps women in a perpetual cycle of being second-class citizens unless there's a way to get out of this poverty.
1: Audrey, I want to bring you in, but Tammy, I think you need to explain that figure, $6 billion in arrears in the state of Georgia on uh, payments for custodial care. What does that mean? I'm not aware of that figure, so I think you need to explain it just a little bit more.
3: Sure. So um, the Federal Health and Human Services noted that in um, in the United States, Um, and territories, there's $113 billion worth of child support arrears. This means that every month the custodial parent is owed a particular amount of money that is set by the court. Um, And when um, the non-custodial parent is behind, that is called arrears. So this means that here in the state of Georgia, $6 billion dollars are owed to the custodial parent and back child support payments.
1: So, uh, thank you. So, we're talking now about private payments from a uh, 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 from a the father of a of a of a child. I'm glad you explained that, Audrey. Jump in.
0: Well, so you know we've talked about uh, the economic dimension, the health dimension. I'm going to bring in sort of the political dimension, and that is to go all the way back in time and history. Um, in terms of uh, women um, and abortion. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that up until about the mid-19th century, abortion was something that was pretty commonplace. It was also something that was done by women for women. And it wasn't until about 1847 that the American Medical Association, which at the, at the time only included uh, white men, blacks and women, were uh, barred from being members. And, you know, um, they wanted to regulate what they considered to be at that time, quacks, you know, non-medical professionals. So that was sort of the beginning. And then the political ramifications were at every juncture in the time period where there has been some decision made about abortion, it has been done primarily by men. And it has, sometimes the pendulum has swung. I mean, right now, even in our nation, only about maybe 28% to 33% of any political body, whether it's like a legislature, uh, whether it's governorships and so on, um, has women participating in it at different points in our history. Uh, men have changed their mind. After the Great Depression, there was some relaxing of abortion rules. After uh, an impact of rubella, where children who were being carried suffered mass, massive birth defects, um, men changed their minds. Oh, maybe that's not great for women. And then after the Equal Rights Amendment uh, was attempted, that's really when we saw the political connection between abortion and um Uh, women in politics, uh, especially because it was then that it was begun to be used as a tool, um, a wedge issue. And a lot of propaganda was utilized at that time, too. So that's sort of Um, a a tiny bit of political history.
1: I I didn't mean to interrupt you at the end there, Audrey. I apologize. Um, Before the show, we started talking about the personal impact that a couple of you I've had in terms of being women who want to have babies, uh, but working in professional settings, and the obstacles that you faced in some cases, and I think it's important to personalize this for a few minutes, and you've agreed that you're willing to do that. Karen, you have a story about your experience as um, uh, when you got pregnant and, and had an experience with a professor in a class of you.
4: Yes. And so um, on this panel is Audrey Haynes, who was one of my mentors at the University of Georgia. But while I was there, um, my first year of my Ph.D. program, I became pregnant and I had a professor who, when I had to go to bed rest, counted me absent from his course because I was not able to be in class. And he told me I was not participating. And as a result of missing class and being counted absent, I received a B the only B I received in graduate school, which maybe there's a little harsh feelings on that part, but he was a professor, had he was not married, didn't have children, he did not understand. And I will say that several other professors came to me and told me that there could be a balance between pursuing my higher education and having a family and doing it all, but it was you know incumbent upon me to work at it. Um, but it was very challenging in the fact that I felt like I was being penalized For wanting to have a family. And part of it was to take care of my health. I mean, I was in a position where if I didn't get bed rest or I wasn't at home, I could be in danger of my own life, but also my child's.
1: And Tammy, you, we've talked about your triplets on the show before, uh, but you too had an experience when you were pregnant with the triplets.
3: Sure. Uh, So I had an experience pregnant with them. And then when they were born, the experience with them is, um, that I had a supervisor who wanted to, um, who, who attempted, um, to put me on disability for being on hospital bed rest, um, so that my children could be born, um, on time. Um, and then once my children were born, um, he came to me and asked me why, why was my, why were my children sick so much? Um, and, um, you know, could, because I wasn't able to come to work because I was taking care of sick uh, babies um, and he had concerns and offered to allow me to work part-time so that I can spend more time at home with the children so that, um, because they were sick, because they just started childcare, care. Um, so it, it was an interesting dynamic of what I assessed at a time was, that some employers want you to have a family because then you become obligated to continue to work. At the same time, my family became an inconvenience for my employer because I had family obligations as well. So it was almost, we want you to have family so you would have to work.
1: Audrey, and then I want to get Margaret back in the conversation.
0: I was going to mention that I was around when that happened to Karen, and um, that was a young and uh, I would argue a liberal uh, professor at the time. And, you know, back in that day, there was just so much inconsistency. You know, some of us snuck under the radar. We had someone who was very sympathetic, um, had a wife, had kids, you know, understood the situation. Um, I think that I just went a whole semester without teaching and no one mentioned it period, both at like Georgia State and Georgia. Um, so sometimes we get lucky, but it's that lack of consistency and um, things have gotten better. I would mention that today in our department, we've had two men who have um, had babies enter their family and they took family leave. So uh, um, some things Mark- have changed, but yeah, not consistent.
1: Margaret, you've had an exceptional career as a journalist, working for some of the most important newspapers in the United States and abroad. Um, And and yet I doubt that there's not a story somewhere there about how you face challenges as a woman in pursuing your career.
2: Yeah, so my my um, career um, spanning the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, um, you know, both of which are are amazing newspapers. They're not so great to work at if you're a woman, though. Um, you know, when I uh, in 1972, one of the landmark um, class action suits to get equal pay for women came from female reporters in the New York Times newsroom. <laughs> it took uh, almost six years for the New York Times to settle that. And you know, holding yourself up as a bastion of democracy and trans transparency and being inside a corporate culture that does not actually honor that for your own employees is is quite a contradiction, Um, you know, because of the glass ceiling that existed for so long within our profession as journalists, you know, I came up through the ranks without ever having um, a female boss, a supervisor. And my mentors um, in the field were people who didn't work with me uh, in, in my newspapers. Um, later on, when I was at the Wall Street Journal, I had a family. I wanted to prioritize my family or figure out a balance of family and work. And um, in, in conflict zones and war-torn nations, when you're covering foreign affairs, sometimes that's that's not very easy. But when I asked to um for for when when I was offered a promotion at the Wall Street Journal, and I asked to um, have my family move with me to be able to take that that promotion, um, that was something that that the Wall Street Journal denied me. At the same time, um, as Audrey was saying, you know, male colleagues were often um, being able to take advantage of the laws um, on the books, um, taking paid uh, leave under the Family Medical Leave Act, and it was you know, federal laws have. Have progressed, I guess, to protect us all. In theory, as long as we have the will, the power, the money to fight against um, the status quo, which sometimes doesn't treat us as equal employees, let alone equal citizens.
1: Um, thank you for being willing to share those stories. Uh, as long as we're talking about women in the workplace, I, I think I should share one very brief story of my own. I think many of you out there uh, who listen to the show know that my wife, Janice Schaefer, has been a successful playwright and. Uh, for a long time, her shows uh, premiered for years at the Alliance Theater. There was one particular critic who was, uh, for one reason or another, not very fond of of her work uh, uh, in some ways. And uh, he began a review, literally, of one of her plays at the Alliance, which, by the way, was a hit and sold out the house most nights. But he began the review by sta- by saying, and this is almost a verbatim quote, Janice Schaefer a stay-at-home mom whose husband is Bill Nygut, the political reporter at Channel 2 News, and from there went on to talk about the play itself. I was humiliated to think that my wife had to be framed in the context of our beautiful kids and me as her husband, who was tagging along to her wonderful career. Let's do this. Let's get to our first break. We have so much more to talk about on the show Um, We're going to talk about maternal mortality, which is another huge issue that women face in Georgia and in the United States. We'll do that and more after these messages.
3: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
1: Karen Owen, Tammy Greer, Audrey Haynes, and Margaret Coker join me for today's Political Rewind. Um... You know, as long as we're on a track of talking a little bit about glass ceilings, I, I do think we should talk about progress to some extent. And we will talk about maternal mortality as well in a minute. Uh, but, Margaret, a couple notes I think are worth making here. The Georgia General Assembly has more women in this session than ever before. Eighty-one uh, 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 members of the General Assembly are women. Uh, that's still not proportional to the percentage of women in the general population, but it is a sign of some progress. And and I think it's worth pointing out that a bill that is now passed the Senate uh, before crossover day ended, which extends uh, welfare benefits to uh, low-income women who are pregnant, not just once they have had the baby, was sponsored by a floor leader for the governor who happens to be a female senator. So there is some movement in the right direction in that sense, yes?
2: Oh, absolutely! Thank, I mean, thank the Lord, as um, as we say uh, in my family. Thank the Lord that this is moving in in that direction. You know, we um, it's about it's about time. I, I would quote the Lizzo phrase, but I don't think I'm allowed to say the full um, the full lyric um, on on air. Um, yes, uh, as as we've all pointed out over the first 25 minutes, you know, the economic opportunities for Georgia women are limited by our health care, our 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 access to Healthcare and the lack of quality health care that we have. So, yes, sometimes, um, sometimes it is not a man's fault that we're in these positions. Sometimes it is a man's fault that we are in these positions when we can't get laws passed that allow us equal access to, um, to federally funded dollars to help us um, help us lead healthier lives when, um, when our law enforcement bodies do not prioritize. Uh, getting um, our, our deadbeat, uh, our deadbeat um, um, you know, intimate partners back out of arrears so that we actually have the money to pay for our, our children's schooling and clothing and, and better education outcomes. You know, those are not our faults. That's the system's fault, and we need people to advocate on our behalf.
1: Audrey, it strikes me as this is an important moment to talk about the fact that um, your program – Uh, which trains, uh, uh, helps uh, uh, put your students on a track to get into careers in politics. I'm curious about how the balance, the gender balance is in terms of women and men moving forward with careers after they've gone through the applied politics program.
0: Well, you know, we are only seven years in. So, you know, we're tracking some of that data. And I would say that at this point, um, you know, having made a very strong effort to bring in uh, women leaders, uh, practitioners, and in, in, in create some balance in the curriculum so that women and young men see people who look like them of every background. Um, I've seen a lot of parody. I mean, I, I think it is when you structure something to give encouragement and support. Um, and, and the truth is, I have a couple of young women who have gone off to teach uh, social studies, but I also have a couple of young men who have done the same. So, you know, personalities may take them in a different direction but in my program so far we're seeing um students of both genders uh, of all genders i should say going out and utilizing what they've learned to to make a difference and find their niche
1: karen let me expand this uh, just a little bit and take a global view at women in politics in this case um Uh, According to research, last year, there was more progress for women in politics in terms of the number of countries that have gender parity or more women than men in their uh, governing bodies, their parliaments. But that's only six. (laughs) It doubled from three to six in in 2020. This is I'm sorry, this is 2021, the most recent year. No G7 country is in the top 30 in the rankings of parity or more women than men in their uh, parliaments. Uh, France is the most progressive, and it's ranked 36th with 37% of women. I just think that's fascinating as a global issue as well as a problem in this country.
4: So Yes, and we will see internationally, you'll have women who have actually been prime ministers or president of the country. So we've seen that in other nations, not here in the U.S. as at this point. But I will say that some of those countries who do have gender parity, There are gender quotas, so you do have to fill your legislature with a certain percent of women, and so that does allow for the the parity to come into place. Audrey gave a little bit of political history earlier on one topic, and I'll give a little bit on the women's progress. You mentioned at the top of the hour bill that You know, it's been 100 years since women got the right to vote. But if we look historically in the U.S., in the Western states, some of them were giving women the right to vote before the 1920 um, actual passage of the 19th Amendment. So they were opportunities for women in Western states, Wyoming, Colorado, where they were electing mayors in the late 1800s. So there was a progressive movement from the West, which is exciting, because if we look at our actual state legislatures in the Western states, We have some like Nevada, Colorado, that are pushing that 40, upper 40 percent of the legislature are women. If we look across the country, though, that varies. And Audrey mentioned earlier kind of that quarter percent right now in the United States Senate, 25 women are serving. That's one of the largest groups of women serving in the Senate. That makes a difference. And when we talk about women in historical context, we always kind of go back to 1992, the year of the woman, when after the Anita Hill Um, testimony Clarence Thomas. Then we had a lot of women run. But if you look in the last decade, we see spikes again of more year of the women. So just even last year, more women were competing in the legislative races, state uh, county commissions and all of that. And if we look at Georgia, the legislature, we do have more women, but we also have more women serving in Congress. We have three right now. We had a high of four just two years ago. So We do see that we have more women in elective office, and that changes not only the conversations around the topics we've talked about, healthcare, economics, it changes how our legislation is actually crafted. Because when women go into the legislature as an elected body, they are much more willing to compromise, negotiate with others, and get problems solved.
1: Uh, That's really, thank you for laying all that out for us. Tammy, jump in.
4: So
3: um first uh, I am a board member of Georgia Women Connect which is an organization that um is uh you know looking to train and uh, help women to get on county boards and commissions. Um so I just want to plug in that that sometimes you know on the local level this is where you see much of the progress and then the ability for women to see themselves in these uh particular spaces. I also want to note that um while I I, I think it's important for us to talk about women being in these spaces, particularly politically. At the same time, um, there we have to be clear as to who, though, and and which demographic are also in these spaces, because you know we had um, what two women elected, two black women elected to the U.S. Senate in the entire history of the U.S. Senate. Um, And neither one of them are in the U.S. Senate anymore. One now currently as the vice president and the other only served one term. So I think it's important for us not only to understand from a gender descriptive representation standpoint, also when it comes to just the totality of life experiences within the country, because that also allows for the empathy and the open the door to equity that is missing in some of the legislation that we have. And I know that we're going to talk about um, healthcare care um, and th- how um, this expansion for low-income women. It's not just low-income women, though, that are facing maternal mortality. It's also middle-class women. And if we um, keep moving into these separate boxes, we're actually missing the larger picture of how this all connects to each other.
1: All right. um, Let's move on and talk about maternal mortality. Um, We know that Georgia has had a significant problem. We have been at the very highest uh, 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 numbers of problems in the country. Um, We're in the top 10 right now of of maternal mortality uh, issues, deaths. Um, It's not a lot, um, fortunately. I mean, it's a relatively small number. I think 78, 80 Uh, deaths over the last couple of years. But nevertheless, um, it points to a significant problem that Georgia is still uh, hasn't solved yet. And Margaret, um, of course, it disproportionately affects uh, black and Hispanic uh, women and those in lower income groups. So we still face a tremendous problem. And the national problem is significant. And we'll talk about that, too, in a minute. Margaret. Yeah, there's um, it's
2: it's incredibly unfortunate because most of the deaths that are that are I think documented in in those reports um, small numbers from an absolute sense but most of those deaths are preventable they should have been preventable and a lot of the underlying causes for women dying in childbirth is the unequal access to um, prenatal and postnatal care uh, when when there's underlying health conditions that that you. You can't manage on your own, and you have no health insurance when you become pregnant. Obviously, those are conditions that exacerbate. It's it you know there's the the root causes um, ref, are are reflected in all of our inequalities. I think that all of us on the panel here today will agree on. There's unequal access to health care. We keep coming back to it. There are systemic issues related to uh, entrenched poverty and racism in the state of Georgia. When you have rural uh, counties that are both uh, demographically majority white and majority minority and you don't have pediatricians or obgyns all women who live there are endangered um it's really gratifying i think that that both parties are realizing this um that that republicans because their base is in the the rapidly depopulating rural georgia as figuring out that that these are healthcare issues that do not um do not have a color painted on them it's not a red or blue issue it's a it's a, um, it's a matter of survival for both your constituency um, and, and your neighbors. So again, um, to paraphrase Lizzo, it's about time that we're doing something about this. Yeah. But, um, but yes, women in Georgia should not be, women in America should not need to be equated with uh, developing world countries when it comes to your chances of giving birth in a healthy and safe way.
1: Yeah, we should point out that the United States has one of the highest rates of mater- maternal mortality of any of the developed countries in the world. Um, Tammy, I don't have the breakdown uh, based on race or ethnicity in Georgia, but I do have CDC figures. <clears throat> excuse me. I think their most recent year for looking at this data was um, 2018, and I, I suspect that Georgia's data would uh, 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 mimic this in some ways. Uh, maybe not the numbers, uh, but the breakdown of uh, race, for instance. So in 2018, CDC reports that among women, uh, you, if you start with 100,000 uh, births, uh, 41.4 of those uh, uh, are, are people who died in pregnancy were black, while 13.7 uh, were white. Um, so we see this uh, as, as a significant racial problem, obviously. sorry, I'm sorry if I didn't make that clear. I hope I did.
3: No, absolutely, Bill. Um, and, you know, in Georgia, it's something like um, multi-times Black women are, 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 are likely to die in childbirth as compared to their white counterparts. And something almost like 90-plus percent of Black women in Georgia— as compared to other developed nations, when it comes to um, dying within that particular time frame, and so when we are, when we understand that, you know, it's a challenge when, when we talk about access to healthcare, when we talk about. You know, nearly half of the counties in Georgia not having OBGYN. When we talk about the amount of poverty that these women are faced with and the economic constraints, which then dovetails into the political constraints. So, again, it is systematic and all connecting together um, to keep, um, in particular, Black and brown women, yet women overall, in a place in society where we don't have full access to citizenship. As, um as our as males do and I'm not sure when we as women as the dominant gender right we are more than 50 percent of the population in this country when will the space come in for us to have this realization that we are not in the minority yet we're taking a minority stance when it comes to legislation.
1: Um, sometimes, Karen, I want to bring you in, but sometimes my words get ahead of my brain. Let me make sure I explain what I said correctly. Uh, CDC reports that of 100,000 live births, 41 of them will be uh, deaths, pregnancy-related deaths will be black women, and only uh, 13, 14% will be white women. Now, go ahead, Karen.
4: Well, I was just going to add that obviously Margaret and and Tammy spoke very eloquently about this disparity we see in the access to care. But once women do get the care, what's really disturbing to me is that they're not listened to about their symptoms and their problems that many times they are ignored. Um, They are complaining of problems postpartum, and therefore they're not getting the treatment, which is where Margaret hinted to a lot of these deaths are preventable. If you'll give me a moment of personal privilege here, when I was expecting my second child, I suffered greatly from hyperemesis, and the only person who advocated strongly for me to get support and help was a female nurse. The doctors did not understand why I was so sick. And so it's partly, you know, as Tammy mentioned, we are half the population, and we need to be advocating much more strongly for other women when they do have conditions to get the support and help they need. And that's not being, I think, done adequately at this point.
1: Audrey, um, and one of the other things we have to talk about here is that the maternal mortality rate also points to other Health-related issues that are not being dealt with uh, for uh, the female population in this state or across the country. You're you're muted, Audrey. You promised you would not mute on this show, and you did.
0: Um, I can't believe it. I will say that there was a little activity going on outside of my office. It was really loud. I was just trying to be polite. So you know, I'm so sorry. But again whatever. So let me answer your question and that is um if i can remember your question now after being so embarrassed on it. Well, it's uh, it's uh,
1: it's uh, healthcare, healthcare in general uh, for women beyond maternal mortality rates. Uh, right.
0: Well, and I, w- I was going to mention too that you know clearly my um people talk about their reverence for uh women all the time, their mothers, their sisters. But you know, somehow this becomes disconnected when they talk about some of the policies and our culture and how women are treated. I wanna kind of bring it back to abortion. You know, a startling statistic is that in all of these states that have banned abortion, uh, banned it without any exception for rape or incest, uh, banned it without really thinking about the consequences it would have uh, to women. the maternal death rate in those states is 62% higher than other states that don't have those bans i mean that is a, a huge huge implication and it's something that i you know we always say women are not monolithic that women have lots of different attitudes on some of these issues but one attitude they should be united on is that women deserve equal access to good health care, just as anyone else. And there should be no variation between, you know, race, um, you know, status, economics. I, I would also note that women earn less money than men in every single age category. And our economic success plateaus in middle age. It gets worse. So, you know, again, our audience and, and women in general need to really unite together to work on these issues, and so do men. All
1: right. got to get to the final break. I, I, t- I mentioned in the opening, the headlines to the show, other issues besides talking about what's going on on International Women's Day. This is too good a conversation. If you're all okay with it, I would love to continue talking about women's issues. And we will defer to tomorrow uh, some of the other things that I mentioned in the headline today Um, But this is just too smart a panel. And I do want to look at exactly what Audrey just talked about. And that is the continuing pay gap between women and men in the United States. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Karen Owen, uh, Pew just released a study on March 1st that uh, reveals the pay gap between women and men. And here's the headline. The difference between the earnings of men and women has barely closed in the United States in the past two decades. In 2022, women earned 82 cents for every dollar earned by men. If you go back to 2002, 20 years earlier, the gap was 80 cents to the dollar. It's barely moved at all, Karen.
4: Yes, it's uh, very disheartening again to hear this news that women make less than men, and that we're not closing that gap more. If we see that women recently, we have more college graduates who are women, more women enrolled in college, so they're you know getting higher education, but they're not actually receiving the benefit of that increased education and skills and experience to then turn over into their pay. Um, when we see the disparity again with African-American women, Hispanic, Latina women, they make even less than that 80, 85 uh, cents to the dollar of men. And it just goes to show that we've been making progress, but we're actually more like now plateauing and um, women are still struggling economically. I know that many times we hear of a fatherhood premium So men continue to get more, especially when they have children, they earn more. Their employers find that it's important to give them that. I think I've heard anecdotally several times from colleagues that because the men are the breadwinners, they need to earn more. Um, And as Tammy mentioned earlier, though, many households are driven by women and they're the breadwinners. And yet they're not able to support at the same level that men are. Margaret?
1: Margaret?
2: You know, in my experience of how important it is to have people who look like you and have your own life experiences in the organization and in um, positions of executive power within within your workplace. Um, again, in in my larger news organizations, when I was still working in national commercial um, news organizations, it took women to be in executive positions in order to have pay reviews done um, um, at those companies. And, you know, wide scale company wide pay review is the only way to try and tackle these real structural inequalities that we have between men and women in equal positions earning different pay. And the fact that women, you know, these, we around this time every year there's always the statistics that come out about how many women are leading um, Fortune 500 CEOs how many more women are in executive power and the numbers are small but but those numbers are also powerful when it they start to to breed this radical transformation in the way that um HR departments and hiring processes happen so Um, I have been in positions to mentor younger female journalists. Um, I now run um, with my colleague, Susan Catron, Georgia's only um, (coughs) female-run organization. So, you know, small steps to hopefully get bigger results is the only thing we can hope for.
3: Tammy? So, yeah, um, also, I think it's important for us to, to be clear that women take on mothering roles when it comes to the workplace. We're the ones who are the pre-K teachers. We're the ones who are um, the K through 12 teachers that get less pay, yet we love We are the nurses that get less pay than doctors. Um, We are the ones that are in these types of support roles. Um, And when we think about uh, corporations, we're the ones that's over HR or customer service, right? We're not over the operational components of corporate where there is more money. So I think it's also important to understand where are we? what roles we are, quote-unquote, expected to take in, in the workplace, and then how do those roles impact our pay?
1: Audrey, uh, um, I think what Tammy said is really important. We, we've, we, one of the things that Pew found was that women uh, uh, tend to choose um, perhaps less significant jobs once they've had children because they're not sure they can keep up the pace of working in a in a in a high highly motivated professional position but you also said an important thing a couple minutes ago before the break that as women age in the workplace uh they tend to uh, the t- pay gap tends to grow larger <clears throat>
0: well that is true and you know I, I would all argue that, um, you know, back to the, the first point that you made, occupational clustering is the term that's often used when we talk about where women go into work. And six out of 10 women actually work in education and healthcare, leisure and hospitality and retail and wholesale. And those tend to have lower um, salaries, you know, so there is this clustering. Part of that is, you know, access. What do you have access to? What have you seen your mentors doing? We have seen some changes. I mean, there are, I remember back in the day when I was a young woman, they were arguing about whether women could be firemen or police firemen, did you hear that? Fire people, police people, you know, so culturally we're changing. Um, But I do wanna add one thing before we close and that is economic issues, uh, the year of the woman, And, you know, things like maternal health care, most people don't realize that most of the women who have abortions, um, like almost half of them already have a child. And they're making decisions sometimes because of economics, especially single mothers. Um, So, you know, all of these things are more complex than just passing law um, and not thinking about the consequences and how it affects everyone.
1: We have less than, we probably have about two and a half minutes left in this show. So I wanted to do a very quick uh, uh, run around all of you. Are we, we've talked about the problems. Start with you, Margaret, and very quickly, are women doing much better today than they were, say, 10 years ago? And uh, how promising is the future? What would
2: it? When it comes to professional advancement in our profession of journalism, absolutely yes. When it comes to the ability to make a livable wage and have healthy, um, sort of reasonable, reasonable healthcare outcomes, I would say no. Audrey, well,
0: I'm really concerned that we go in cycles, and I think we're heading into a cycle where there's a lot of pushback. And you know, just like I mentioned earlier, um, unless we see real change coming from both political parties. I, I worry about actually falling backwards.
1: Tammy?
3: I concur with Margaret and Audrey. I would also say, though, I see joy and progress in my children who are amazing <laughs> girls who stand up for themselves. And if the world could be like them, it would be amazing.
1: I love that perspective. I second that about my daughter, Emma. Karen, you get the final word today.
4: Well, I'll leave on an optimist optimistic note i am sitting in a seat as a dean and i say yes there is progress because 20 years ago i didn't see very many female deans so i'm excited about that i also have a nine-year-old daughter and she is pushing to be at the table and make decisions so yes we're gonna make <laughs> I love progress
1: oh, karen owen tammy greer audrey haynes margaret coker what a wonderful conversation on international women's day thank you so much for being here. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and please, please stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.